0: Welcome to this bonus episode of the Lady Science Podcast. I'm one of your regular hosts, Layla McNeil, and I'm excited to welcome back to the show Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. She is a theoretical physicist and an assistant professor of physics and core faculty member in women and gender studies at the University of New Hampshire. Today, she is here to talk about her new book, The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space Time, and Dreams Deferred. So thank you for coming back on the show. Thank you for having me again. And so just to start us off talking about your book, could you tell us a little bit about the book and where it gets its name?
1: Yeah. So the book is a holistic look at the doing of physics. So I wanted to give people kind of a big picture. This is physics from my perspective as a scientist and practitioner of physics, but this is also physics as a community, as a journey, as a social phenomenon. So rather than acting like all we do is like calculate and there's no other aspects to a life in physics or the doing of physics, I wanted to give kind of the bigger picture and not just physics, but also astronomy. The title has like kind of a funny story, which is The Disordered Cosmos was the name of the blog that I kept while I was in graduate school when I was getting my PhD. <laughs> and the name is inspired by the first paper I ever published, which is described in the book. I was trying to solve the cosmic acceleration problem using some ideas motivated by quantum gravity. And it had non-local disordered connections, space-time connections in it. So I was like, it's a disordered cosmology. So when it came to writing my first book, I was like, well, obviously this should be called the disordered cosmos. And I'm a big Carl Sagan fan, so I'm pretty sure that that's also how Disordered Cosmos happened.
0: Well, in the first part of your book especially, you walk readers through what cosmologists and astrophysicists do know about the cosmos, but you also give a lot of attention to what we don't know. For instance, dark matter is still a mystery, what it is and if it is even real. And so I wanted to ask why to you is exploring what we don't know so important to our understanding of this book and your work? Yeah, I, I,
1: I can't remember exactly the title or, and I hope I'm getting his name right, but there's a book by, I think, Stuart Feirstein, who's a professor, I want to say, of neuroscience at Columbia University. That the gist of it is basically that science is what we don't know. So I think that students of science, particularly high school students and undergraduates, can get the wrong impression about what science is like because they're studying from textbooks. And when things appear in a textbook, it's because we understand them already and they're what we know. And so you can walk away with the impression that science is what we know. And actually, science is, for the most part, about being uncomfortable uh, or, you know, being comfortable with being confused. Maybe it's the better way to put it. We spend a lot of time being unsure because doing research, whether it's in science or, you know, in English literature, is always that kind of like the boundary of our interpretive understanding. What do we know? What do we think we know? And um, we're constantly pushing that boundary forward. And that's actually our task as intellectuals is to push our boundary of what we know forward. But that also means living at the boundary of what we don't know.
0: I found that to be a refreshing approach to a popular science book. I just feel that a lot of the ones that I've read, obviously I have not read all of them. So <laughs> that that was just a really refreshing Way to be introduced to the work that you're doing. Yeah,
1: I, I I think that it's 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 important to put something different out there. I'm not going to name names, but I can think of examples of books that are like on highly speculative ideas, particularly in physics. And I think there's a lot of currency for this in in um, the publishing industry of putting out books about really speculative ideas and then talking about those ideas as if they are known and verified. I really don't know what we're gaining from this besides like selling books. Like I understand how it works to sell books. (laughs) I understand like it intrigues people and that sort of thing. But I also, you know, we have all these conversations about how people don't trust scientists enough. And I don't see how this helps with the trust issue if we can't even, you know, be very clear about what's speculative and what's known. Yeah. I think it's fine to do speculative work. Like I'm a theoretical physicist. That's what I do is speculative work. But I, if that's what I'm going to do, I have to be comfortable being honest about it.
0: Yeah. And one of the things that structures this book is physics as an analytical framework for many things. Obviously, the cosmos but also melanin, the gender binary, and the basic human rights of Black children. Can you talk a little bit about how physics provides a way into understanding these things?
1: So I have to say, like, let's start with the gender binary thing, because I have to make sure that I give citational credit here, that there is an, I think, Iraqi-British drag queen named Amru. And Amru was at some point asked, I think in a in a Channel 4 UK interview, about their understanding of the gender binary and they essentially said that um it's like how particles are both particles and waves at the same time and that that was another way of thinking about the gender spectrum and about being non-binary from from their point of view and i i saw that and thought it was like quite brilliant and then a bunch of people sent it to me after <laughs> I thought and 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 it's interesting to me, right, that everybody immediately thought of Chanda. I, <laughs> partly because like I, I'm someone who has publicly I identified myself as an agender woman, as someone who has discomfort specifically with the gender binary, even if like my relationship to the idea of a sex is different, even though I think that they're both complicated and both live on a spectrum. I I actually had written a chapter for the book called um, "The Anti Patriarchy Agenda," <laughs> and sorry, I'm like laughing at my own pun. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still really proud of it. <laughs> um, and I actually rewrote the introduction of the chapter because I was like, this uh, an analogy that Amru is making is actually a really key one because also some of the fiercest critics of you know, our, our efforts to make it easier for for students and colleagues in academia to ensure that they're that the right pronouns are being used for them, or pronouns that they are okay with being used for them in public are being used. Scientists have really been some of the the fiercest critics of of these efforts, like people claiming that it's not biological and all of this other garbage. And then I was like, but wait, like scientists are also perfectly fine with like you know, it can be a particle and a wave at the same time, but you guys are, like, upset that someone might feel like they're different genders on different days. Like, come on now. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, patriarchy is just so, like, lazy yeah. and boring, and it's really annoying that we have to waste time on it because it's so lazy and boring.
0: <laughs> yeah. I thought that was such a good point in the book where you're like, look, we're Theoretical physicists and we're thinking about all of these great many possibilities, but we can't allow for these types of possibilities, and we can't even manage to use someone's pronouns correctly. Like, come on!
1: I just like that's exactly it, right? Like, um, people are always like, "Oh, it's hard handling like racism is hard," and I'm like, <laughs> we built the Large Hadron Collider, <laughs> and we've mapped out a timeline like a 14 billion year timeline of the evolution of space time and everything inside of it. Now, granted, we're still like really confused about like what 95, 96% of the matter energy content is, right? So like, we have no idea what dark matter is. We're not sure what's causing cosmic acceleration. We cause the dark energy for reasons that I actually find kind of annoying. I don't actually think I talk (laughs) about that in the book, but for reasons I find kind of (laughs) annoying. Um, but even so, we can we we have like pretty good confidence about uh, several things that happen in the first three minutes of a 14 billion year timeline, and we know all of the stuff about galaxies, and we know enough that we've been able to identify that there's something like the dark matter or modifications to gravity are necessary. But y'all are going to tell me that you can't figure out how to cheat, treat black students with respect? Like that's hard for you? That's a choice. Mm -hmm. Like that is 100% a choice and it's about your priorities.
0: Can you also talk a little bit about the physics of melanin?
1: So this chapter of the book, it's based on an essay that I wrote for Bitch Magazine. It was in the winter 2017 print issue. I I say it was based on it because like, I really feel like they are almost two different creatures at this point point it was maybe the hardest chapter in the book to write, partly because like there were difficult decisions that had to be made about how to open it and where I wanted the reader's attention to go. My original motivation for writing about this is that often when we talk about black people and science, we're talking about histories of oppression, whether it's because we were being treated as experimental subjects or it's because we were being marginalized from science. And in some sense, the physics of melanin was inspired by the idea of like, what if I just thought about our bodies as part of the physical universe through the lens of the knowledge system that I am trained in? So specifically through the lens of physics and not through the lens of biology, which like I've never taken, like I didn't take a full biology class in high school. I took it in summer school so I could skip it, right? (laughs) So I'm really like very much a physicist through and through. And so I wanted to think about it like a physicist. So that's that was really what I was thinking about when I, when I published the essay in Bitch, and then when I was updating the chapter for the book, I was at a different place in my life. I was further along in my work in science, technology, and society studies. I was engaging a lot more with the scholarship of people in STS, as it is known, who think about race as a, as a social construct versus these debates about whether it's biological and all of that stuff. And I felt a responsibility to attend to that. I felt a responsibility to attend more carefully to how we even got to a place where melanin is first the subject of this massive social debate and like a very distant, like second or one hundredth subject of these like physical questions. And so I think that really shaped the writing, but I would say like, even as the book was going through like copy editing and then like like first the first pass I'm in November was like the first time that I hadn't made a major change to the chapter so I'll just say like it was the hardest one and I expect it to be the one that is maybe most difficult for for people to be satisfied with maybe maybe I shouldn't be telling people what to be unhappy about but (laughs) like maybe maybe that's my expression of i see all of the things that could have been done differently and actually i visited ruha benjamin's class at princeton yesterday and they read the essay the 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 bitch version and i i said to them that i almost feel like this is something that should have had a book devoted to it instead of like a chapter
0: is the physics of melanin is that your coinage yes Awesome. I thought that might be the case. And I also wanted to touch a little bit on how you see physics as a basic human right of Black children. And you do mention in the book that this is as much of a a right as clean water and food.
1: I, I definitely think that in some sense, that's maybe going to be the most surprising thing for, for a certain set of readers, particularly since I think people are so used to Again, talking about science in these terms, of we're either victims of it or being oppressed in it, et cetera. And, And I actually think like maybe like a really good example is like Perseverance just landed on Mars, right? And there was immediately like, this is just in the last week, there was immediately a big social media discussion about like, well, why didn't we spend that money like feeding people or housing people or something like that? And I, I understand like the impulse to to have that thought. And I also understand this to be a product of people not really realizing exactly like how big the distance is between like billions of dollars and trillions of dollars, or even like millions of dollars and billions of dollars. Like it's like, oh, it's one more zero, but actually like you know, the percentages matter. Um, and, and if we have people who aren't comfortable with big numbers, that, that can really get lost in the mix. So I, I wanted to push people a little bit to rethink the conversation, which is rather than saying that we have to choose between being interested in the universe um, or, you know, saving black lives. What about the idea that like black people are interested in the universe and that part of saving black lives is giving black people the, the, the conditions in which they can be curious about the universe? Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
1: like, and, and, and that's partly like, that's my dream for myself. I want those conditions. And so in some sense, I'm saying I want to time travel and give my childhood self those conditions. I can't actually do that, but at the very least I can write for for the next generation. And that's in part why, you know, Dreams Deferred, the Langston Hughes references in the subtitle, is that I'm writing about dreams that I have had for myself that I know will be deferred to a generation that comes after me. And that's one of them, which is give us the conditions. And so just to to draw the connection with like clean water, et cetera, which is the conditions that give people the freedom to look at the night sky, to feel liberated, to just kind of sit down and wonder, is that you have to not have a care. You have to like not be worrying about where your next meal is going to come from. You have to not be worrying about, like, is it safe for me to be outside at night? Or what happens if the cops come across me standing outside looking around? Mm -hmm.
0: Right? Yeah. And I do like when you connect that to history and you say that you want Black children to be able to look at the night sky in a different way than their ancestors did in that they're not using the night sky to navigate to freedom, but that they have the freedom to do that because the conditions yeah. have allowed them to do that. I, I loved that connection that you make to, to history and your ancestors. And placing yourself in history is something that you do throughout the book. You place yourself in the history of physics, in the history of your ancestors. And in my experience, it's really rare to see this kind of historical self-reflection in a science book. Um, so how does this kind of reflection shape your work in the way that you see yourself in it? Yeah. Oh, big question. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I think that one one way that I want to communicate to people about science is my personal perspective on like what I'm doing as a scientist, right? And part of what I'm doing as a scientist, as I mentioned, we have this whole like cosmological timeline. When I say a cosmological timeline, I'm talking about a story. Mm. And stories can be true. So I don't want anybody to say, oh, well, you're making it sound like it's fiction or something. I think it's a true story with like maybe some mistakes in it, right? Because we're sometimes finding out that actually we didn't understand things as well as we did. But like, you know, let's say that it's a fairly accurate story, but nonetheless, it is storytelling. And I, I think that, that that framing of it is the one that makes sense to me as a scientist, And it makes sense to me as a Black scientist. I'm not sure I can separate those two things. And it is also the case that I know as a Black person that storytelling is part of my culture as it is as part of like every um, community on Earth. I don't think I've ever heard of a human community that didn't have storytelling as a fundamental feature of culture. And so I think part of what I'm trying to articulate is a sense of continuity for people where often continuity... For the idea of black scientist is not articulated the idea is that like we are new that we somehow um that there is somehow some kind of a historical break in which we arise like if you think of like i don't know fred moten's break um and that we exist in the wake of slavery and that we only exist in the wake of slavery um as, as christina sharp might articulate it right and I think what I want to say is that it's certainly the case that all of us who are alive today, whatever um, your like socially assigned uh, gender at birth, whatever like racial category that that you might fall into, that we all live in the wake of slavery. Um, but there was a time before that, and we were doing the kind of intellectual work that we might label as science now before slavery. And I, I wanted to mark that in very clear terms, partly because I think part of the struggle of being a Black scientist is articulating a sense of self, um, like a sense of whole self, where you don't feel like parts of you are at odds with other parts of you. And I think that that's partly socially imposed. When you're told that like I'm like Black people don't do science, you're like, oh, I'm weird. You're not weird. You're you're part of a legacy.
0: There are personal aspects to this book like when, when talking about your self-reflection and history and that type of thing, but the book certainly is not a memoir and it doesn't read like a memoir, but you've posted on Twitter about the problem with publishers wanting you to turn it into one and with librarians categorizing it as a biography. And I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on what's going on here with people trying to categorize your book in this way.
1: Yeah, so I, I should say, you know, there are two different situations. So what publishers were looking at was a book proposal. So I didn't go to them with a completed manuscript. I went to them with a proposal that had an anecdote, that had um, a table of contents, that had some chapter summaries, and had a sample chapter. And I think the sample chapter was The Physics of Melanin, which is like an extremely not memoirish chapter, mm-hmm. right? Right. And what happened with publishers is they would be like, oh... So we really like you as a writer, and I know they have to say that, but I also, I kind of believe that, like, they actually genuinely, and that's why they were speaking to me, is that they thought I was a a good enough writer. But we really think that this, it would be great for you to do a memoir or to make it straight science. Which you know, for, for those of us like you and me who work in like science, technology, society studies, history of science, sociology of science, chafes like right. a lot. <laughs> Which is like they were basically like, can, I know you believe that science and society co-construct, but could you just take out the the society part and just say science constructs? <laughs> like like that was kind of I, I almost feel like like there's definitely I am, um, you know, a piece to be written there about how publishers of popular science actually drive this this um, social view that people end up having about what science is by insisting that they will refuse to market anything that says something different. Mm-hmm. And my understanding of those conversations was very much that they were saying, well, we just don't know how to market what you're saying you would like to do. <laughs> and one of the reasons that I ended up with the publisher that I did is that Katie O'Donnell, my editor, she had been watching my writing and was like, I want you to write that. I want you to write what is in you to, to be written.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I, I guess like the one comment I'll make specifically about the memoir is that there were moments that it it truly felt, well, actually, I should say like one person said, what about an anti-Trump polemic? And I was like, mm. Which, like, of course, also the timeline would have been terrible because it would have been coming out in the first few months of the Biden administration. Right. (laughs) Um, So that was, like, kind of a cynical, oh, he's probably going to win a second term. And I was like, I'm not going to gamble on that because my hope is that he doesn't. Right. But just, just to come back to the memoir thing, I think also after Hidden Figures came out, there was a kind of market for consumption of the stories of black women scientists, not for the sake of like filling in gaps in our social timeline, but for the sake of, um, you know, people love a story of travesty and tr- trial and triumph and like you're a black woman who's overcome things. And I actually don't want to be used like that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that was part of it. with the li- With the Library of Congress... And the subject classification, I think that, you know, I, so I want to say actually the Library of Congress worked with me to address it, and I'm quite happy with the, the, the classification that appears on um, on the, the copyright page of the book.
0: Oh, good. Um, I,
1: yeah, yeah. My publisher was like, how did you pull that off? I was like, I don't know. My agent was like, she's, she's so good with Twitter. And I was like, I don't know <laughs> if that's how other people feel about it, but okay, I'll take it. I'm... Um, I think they were trying to figure out how to make sure that black readers would get the book. This speaks to all kinds of problems with like how libraries are thinking about how um uh like how to get books into readers' hands and which books do readers need. But the idea basically was that if it was classified as African-American biography, that it would be put in the section where black people go. I think that that was like part of the thought, which is like not a terrible thought that black people might go to the African-American biography section, but it actually just like, then you have to ask yourself, well, why aren't, why do you feel black people aren't going to the science section? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Like why why did you choose African-American biography but particle physics doesn't appear there? What role do libraries have in getting black kids, black teenagers, which is probably the appropriate level and up for the book. How do you get black teenagers into the particle physics section? I want to hear your plan for that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I don't know if probably not white men, science writers have the same issue with this. No, they (laughs) They do not. I, I, I checked. I checked this.
1: Um, and actually, you know, the example that I immediately pulled from my shelf was Brian Keating's Losing the Nobel,
0: mm-hmm.
1: because that book actually arguably in some ways is a memoir, because it's not primarily intended to be a popular science book, even though that's part of what it does. Um, But it's primarily the story of how I'm... Brian ended up not being a central figure in the BICEP-2 ultimately false announcement of detection of primordial gravitational waves back in 2014. And it's also a commentary on how the way that Nobel Prizes are awarded um, drives people to make these kinds of announcements before they've really, like, done all of, like, you know, ticked all of their boxes and done all of their scientific checks. I pulled that book off the shelf and it had one category well maybe it had two i'm pretty sure it had cosmology and one it definitely had was science methodologies and i was like but he talks about like his father dying and his uncle and how he was treated on the experiment and that's like i reviewed the book i said it was an important book so this isn't me knocking it but the contrast was extraordinary Subsequently, I, I think like a few days after all this happened, I got a book in the mail, which I can't remember the title or the author. My apologies to everyone. <laughs> um, by By a white woman scientist who works on Mars. And on the book flap, it talks about like her personal journey, starting as a child and developing an interest in Mars. And I'm um, the only subject category that it was assigned was about Mars. Mm. So at some point you have to be like, so what's the difference here? (laughs) Like, it's not even particularly like a gender. It's not necessarily that like white women are having a different experience. There was something very clearly like it said black. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Well, then it has to have the black ass categories.
0: (laughs) To kind of wrap up the interview, you end the book with a love letter to your mother, Margaret Prescott. And can you talk a little bit about her and what part she played in the making of this book?
1: Yeah, so my mom didn't see any of the book until we were at the point where I needed to ask her if there was anything that she wanted taken out because we couldn't take anything out after that stage. (laughs) I think like after the copy editors, um, copy edits were sent to me and I had to respond to them at that point. Um, I did my responses and then I sent it to her and I was like, you have a week (laughs) before I have to return this to my publisher, at which point they will start indexing and paginating. And that means that like I can only change like a couple words at a time and I have to count characters. (laughs) Um, So I told her, I need you to read this section on wages for housework and I need you to read this letter to you and I need you to tell me if you're okay with them. I also actually sent it to my dad and specifically told him please read the wages for housework section because I was talking about his mother Selma James in it um and my mom made <laughs> to my surprise honestly my mom made like a very mild edit to the letter she asked me to take something out which like I think I had been thinking about taking out anyway um and then she had like way more to say about like exactly how I had phrased the stuff about wages for housework. And I was like, look, it's not a history of wages for housework. So I'm, my mom has a, so let me just say like my mom has a hard time being the center of attention, which is like a, which can be surprising for people who have interacted with her in the sense that like, um, she's very outspoken. She's a forceful speaker. She's an incredible orator. She's an incredible lobbyist. Like, um, if she wants something, she's going to be on you about it, and she's good at it. Um, and people often interpret this as her being like very self and ego motivated, but she's truly motivated by the community. Um, she's she continues regardless of what her socioeconomic cir- circumstances have been at any point, and they've changed through time. Um, her commitment has always remained firmly with poor welfare mothers, for example. Um, Even though um, I was a WIC baby, but I don't think we were ever on welfare. So it's not exactly, I'm like, you know, this is my story and I have to do the thing. She just has like a real firm sense of right and wrong. And Part of what I'm articulating in the letter is that I think I inherited that from her, for like which annoys people sometimes because people are like, can't you just like be more ego driven and like want to sell more books if you, <laughs> right? Like some of those conversations were hinging on you could make more money if you did this. i um, I guess like the the last comment I'll make about that is that I wanted to surprise my mom. And I think she was surprised, (laughs) but I really, I wanted, I, I, I don't think that there's ever really a way you can thank someone who has done all of the things that my mom has done for me and that I felt like one of the better gifts that I was ever going to be able to give her besides like making something of what she has given me was to actually, we basically like have this giant public thank you that was going to be in people's homes maybe forever and in libraries and, and to make sure that like people knew her name and, and, and knew of of her presence and impact. I'm, I also knew at the time that she was negotiating with HBO, there's going to be a show about her. Oh my gosh. (laughs)
0: That's amazing. So
1: like, like I knew that what I said and, you know, historians are finally starting to interview her because they're finally realizing that she's actually someone that like feminist historians and um, historians of like women's rights movements need to be talking to. Um, but I wanted to make sure that like my perspective on that also got put out there um, because there's really, I don't think anyone else can see it the way that I saw it growing up with her as the only child of a single
0: parent. That was a great way to end the book. Is there anything else that you want people to know about your work or about the book before we close up here? Yeah, I I guess like...
1: Really, over the last few days, I've been getting some questions about the extent to which I deal with alternative ways of knowing or like indigenous ways of interpreting science,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I, I fear that people might be a little bit disappointed on this front because like that's not really my ministry. Like I'm, I'm kind of like happy with like my my language for doing this cosmological storytelling. Um, and I think it's okay that it's not my ministry. Like, I I understand that people are hungry for that. And I also hope at the same time that people accept that one person shouldn't have to be everything and do everything, right? Mm-hmm. My hope is that the book, there will be a Black scientist, or maybe there already is one for whom that is their thing. Figuring out how interpretations of quantum mechanics speak to philosophies from, um, you know maybe a West African community that they know of because like that's where their people are from or that's where they grew up, et cetera. Um, and I hope that my book creates room for them to say, yes, I can, that's it's okay for that to be my thing. And I hope also that my book creates room for them that when they say I'm ready to share the story with the public, that publishers are like, we are ready to give you the the space time to share that story with an audience without trying to mangle it into a polemic or a memoir or tell them like, don't mention Africa, just mention quote, air quote, straight science.
0: Mm -hmm. Publishers, quote unquote, taking a risk and publishing things that aren't mainstream the way that your publisher took that chance with you. And now we have this book, which is, I think, quite different than most popular science books out there, and opening the door to other types of writing about science for sure. And I want to say a big thank you to you for being on the show and letting everybody know that The Disordered Cosmos from Bold Type Books will be released on March 9th. (laughs)